You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. Good morning. Welcome to the Vineyard Community Church at Mount Comfort. My name is Rick Francis. Joy to be with you today. It's overcast. Has anybody felt a drop of rain yet? I had a couple sprinkles this morning, but uh, we were kind of in need of rain. I even cut my grass in anticipation of rain today. So, mm hmm. This morning we're going to go back into our series that we started at the beginning of the year and we stopped in March as we then went into um, preparing for Easter and then the post-Easter series and now coming back to the Gospel of Mark. And everybody said, Amen. <laughs> good, 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 good. The Gospel of Mark is, is unique in that it is not written to Jews. It's not written, written to those who understood the Old Testament. It was written to the Gentiles. And we believe that Peter was the main resource person that John Mark used to get all his information, most of his information, about what Jesus did and said. And so as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we realize that uh, this is the briefest Gospel. And you, you kind of get the sense that Mark is wanting to take us someplace rather quickly. Because he uses immediately, straightway. It's always those kind of movement kind of introductions. And so we find sequence after sequence after sequence. It doesn't go into a whole lot of explanation, but sometimes he will expound a little bit for those that might not understand what the four soils were in chapter four. So today I thought I would just start at chapter one and just give us an overview all the way up to six. No, we don't have that much time, do we? <laughs> I could do that, but we, we don't have that much time. We're gonna pick back up and we're gonna look at the last part of where we left off. And that's gonna be chapter six, verse 12. <clears throat> They went out and preached that people should repent. Who's they? It's the disciples, it's the 12. Jesus had been with them now and now he's getting ready to send them out. He gave them directions, what to take, what not to take, what to do, where to go, how long to stay, what to do if they don't receive you. He gave them all those and now they, they respond. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. 
but she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Let's pray. We ask, Father, for ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive and understand what the Spirit is saying to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the 12 are sent. That's where we left off last time. The 12 were sent. What they do? They went out. It's a nice thing if you get a call and you're told an assignment that is yours, but if you sit on your duff and you don't get up and go, what good is a call from God? And here they are with Jesus, and Jesus sends them, and they actually went. That's amazing. I, I, I don't know if you get as excited about that, because a lot of times there's a ton of stuff that needs to happen, and there's very few that are willing to participate. But here the 12, been with Jesus, they go out. And then we find out what they did when they went. They preached that people should repent. Popular word, popular message, everybody loved it. Repent, 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 repent. Somebody asked if I got a good, good word for them, I say, yeah, repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> and it's like, oh, we, we don't really get into repentance, but it was radical. It was a call to change the direction that they were going. And they'd been going in a direction that was without God, and now the call of the 12, following the message of Jesus, is that the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. Stop going away from the kingdom and start approaching the kingdom because the kingdom's where you're gonna find what you were created for. You weren't created to be in the bondage and the fall and all of the sin and darkness that we find in our world. You were created for heaven. You were created for Eden. You were created for a place that was, the best word is, is paradise. And because of that, you're going to encounter all sorts of stuff here that we need to turn from. And that was the first message of the disciples. Their first message that they ever preached was to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. So stop going your own selfish, deluded, <laughs> demonized, darkness-inspired way, but come toward the kingdom, because that's what you were designed for. That's where you'll find the life that your heart is craving. <clears throat> Second, or thirdly, they drove out many demons. <clears throat> now, many of you realize that there's no more demons in the world today. They all went out during Jesus' time. All the demons left. Right? No, 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 no. That's not true, is it? 
Matter of fact, I was, I was with a brother and, and we were doing some ministry, some deliverance ministry. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, as, as we're talking, we realized that we'll deal with, with the demon that is the, the dominant force that is preventing life in a person's heart, relationships, body, but we don't necessarily deal with all of them at the same time. It'd be nice. Jesus went with the demoniac in, in earlier in chapter five, and he just, the whole legion left, 2,000 into the pigs, down the hill, all of that. And so we, we've looked at that. But when we deal with demonization, we're dealing with systems where the enemy has gotten us to agree with him usually based on our understanding, our hurts, our wounds, our traumas, or our circumstances as they currently are. If all of a sudden you don't have enough money and the devil says, you're a loser, you'll never be able to pay your bills. And you look at your circumstances and you say, yeah, that's true. You've just made an agreement with the kingdom of darkness. You have just made an agreement because Satan and his hordes, all the demons, they count as one person. They count as an entity. And so when you agree with what they're whispering and what they're introducing and yourself, now that's two. Wherever two agree upon anything concerning the earth, so shall it be. That is a spiritual agreement. They now have permission because you gave them permission, not because you thought, I, I, I think today I'll just agree with the devil. No, but he, he's the deceiver. He's the one that makes the lie look like it's the truth. And when we believe the truth and exchange the truth for the lie, then the enemy has legal right to harass and to torment. And as those agreements get built over the years, they develop into what we call a stronghold. It's almost a self-contained system that's running all the time. It's based on all the agreements that we've made that are not true. And the enemy continues to, to churn those and they're strategically designed to steal your sleep, to give you anxiety, to make you depressed. They're, they're strategically designed to harm you in any way possible. It's to keep you from becoming who you truly are in Christ. And when we don't know that we're sons and daughters of the Most High God, the enemy will use anything as long as we don't understand the highest level of who we are. So if he can't stop us from saying a sinner's prayer and asking Jesus into our heart, and now we have the assurance of heaven and, and we know that our sins have been forgiven, then he'll delude you into thinking that you're not powerful enough to really move the way Jesus moved on planet Earth. And so we'll take a second-class kind of Christianity, we'll take a second-class believer, and we'll do, we'll do the things that are kind of religiously expected, but we'll never, never know the fullness and the joy of doing kingdom work doing kingdom activity. If you know Jesus, you have the authority to cast out demons. You might not be very good at it, 
but you have the authority. Need a little training, need a little understanding? Yeah, we all do. If we're dealing with the low-level demons that are kind of ignorant as can be, I mean, there are really stupid demons. Or if we're dealing with the high intellectual demons that are no match for human ingenuity, I pray that your first encounter would be with some dumb demons, just so that you would understand that you do have authority. Your authority over a dumb demon is the same authority that works with an intelligent demon. It's just that you don't know who you are. And if they know that you don't know what you are, they're able to switch the tables on you and get you all confused. But if you stay with what you know is true, that Jesus has given authority to cast out demons to every believer, then you have the power and the authority to do that. Aren't you glad we're talking about demons today? Oh. But that's what they did. And after they drive out the demons, they anoint many sick people with oil and heal them. And this is where, where oil comes into our, our practice and understanding in the healing process. And that's why oftentimes if, if we're praying, we go to the James chapter 5 passage about let the elders come and anoint with oil and the sick person confess their sins, they'll be, they'll be healed. And, all. and here we find it in the gospel that Jesus had taught his 12 to go out and to anoint with oil and to heal the sick. Now, whether the oil was their version of some kind of medicinal thing, it very well could be, but there was a, the tangibility of understanding that oftentimes the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is, has got an association with oil. And when the anointing comes and, and people are anointed, the, the symbol of oil represents the presence of the Spirit. And as it covers whatever uh, individual, whatever's going on in their mind, their body, their spirit, their soul, their relationships, all comes under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which is the influence we want. We don't want the influence that the evil one has been working throughout our lifetime to try to develop into a system that is designed to discourage us, to harm us, okay? So now we've reviewed where we've been. And this is the context. The disciples are out and they're doing all this activity. Jesus has been doing it now for quite some time. Now the disciples are going out and it gets noised abroad and Jesus is well known. They understand who Jesus is. They don't know who he is, but they understand something special is going on with this guy. And so we get to the news of what's taking place. And this is what's being said about Jesus. Now, two chapters later, in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And he gets kind of a, an inside scope. But right now, it's, it's just brought in in the context of all the kingdom activity, the healing, the repentance, the driving out of demons, the freedom that people are experiencing. And as a result of all of this, they're trying to figure out who is this guy? Who is he? Some are saying he's John the Baptist. 
has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. See, John's already lost his head. We'll cover that next week. So he's been beheaded, and they think because of the holy man that he was, that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist because power. So it kind of makes you think that maybe John the Baptist walked in quite a powerful ministry as well. Others said he's Elijah. And they had a theological understanding that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come and prepare the way and make the way straight for the coming of the Lord. So there's an association. Jesus isn't the Messiah, but he could be Elijah. It's not said like that, but it's implied. They, they don't want to give him full Messiahship, but they, but they do understand that he's probably the pre-runner of the Messiah. Of which Jesus lets us know, no, John the Baptist was the pre-runner. He was the one that fulfilled the prophecy about Elijah coming before the Messiah. <clears throat> Others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. He's just like what we've had with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Micah and, and just going down through the prophets. But, and here's the contrast, this is what they're saying, but today the scripture focuses in on what does King Herod say. King Herod, when he heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. I don't know if you could get inside the heart and mind and soul of King Herod, but he's very disturbed. He's very disturbed. And he believes that Jesus, the cousin of John the Baptist, is John the Baptist. So let's focus on what King Herod's belief is and why he believed it. For Herod had given orders to have John arrested. So he's feeling responsible. He knows that if he hadn't arrested John the Baptist, there wouldn't have been an occasion for him to be manipulated to cause him to be murdered. Hmm. He had him bound and put in prison. That's got a weigh on you if you think that the person that you put in prison is holy and righteous so much that you think he's so holy that God raised him from the dead. Hmm. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Hmm. I bet there was some family tension there. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The prophets just speak the truth from God's perspective. They don't care if it's socially acceptable, if it's uh, the right polite way to do it. Most of the times you know, the Old Testament prophets didn't seem to have a whole lot of tact. They, didn't, they were a little short on 
human relations. They, they hadn't gone to the Carnegie course, how to win friends and influence people. They just spoke from God's perspective and they told it the way it was. And here, here John is just saying, do you not know it's against the law to have your brother's wife? Well, this didn't go well with the missus. Herodias nursed a grudge, the scripture says. Have you ever nursed a grudge? You, you, you got something and, and you're just nursing it. You're, you're, it's almost like you've got something that went bad and you keep it in front of you and you continue to refresh that whole incident in your heart. I know in sports, oftentimes it's done that way when you lose the last game of the season and you just nurse that all the time as motivation to win next year, to win next year. It's not a good way. It's definitely not the way of the kingdom. It's not the way we're supposed to go. So if we've got something and we think that somehow by nursing a grudge, we're going to get satisfaction we don't realize that you can't use the kingdom of darkness's methodology and expect to get the end results of the kingdom of God. You can't do that. And so what we do is we forgive. We have to forgive. But Herodias doesn't know Jesus and she's offended that John has said that she's living in adultery with her, with her husband, King Herod, and, and as, as a result, she wants to kill him. That's what happens when you nurse offenses. When you nurse a, an offense over and over and over, it develops and it goes way beyond what you ever really expected it to go. You want to kill. You want to kill the person of the offense. May I just say, we don't fight flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. You know, they may be using a human being as an agent, but it's not the human being that's what we need to be offended at. We need to be offended at what's behind the person, not the person. But she was not able to. <laughs> I just love that. You know, some people don't get what they want because they're just not able to. There's a, there's a protection that comes. And King Herod was a chosen instrument of the Lord to protect John the Baptist especially from his wife's hatred and desire to kill him. Because Herod feared John, the word here is that he had a high reverence and respect for John. He protected him. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Wow. Who wants the blood of a righteous and holy man on their hands? 
When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Isn't that the way the gospel oftentimes is? You hear the holy and righteous one speaking and it can puzzle you. Sometimes they, they live in, in, such a, in such a, what appears to be a different sphere of life that you don't understand what they're saying, especially the prophets. Uh, I always get cracked up when I, when I remember Mike Bickle talking about Bob Jones, the Arkansas prophet, you know, and, and Bob would go out, but they'd always take along with Bob another minister who could translate Bob's prophetic words. Because he would give a prophetic word and he'd say, you know, Paul, I see over you five geese and they're honking and they're flying in a V formation. And everybody's going, huh? What's that mean? But then someone who knew what the prophet was saying was able to break it down so that there'd be understanding. And I just, I just cracked that up. And so I'm thinking, you know, I think there might've been a little Bob Jones in John the Baptist. <laughs> that, prophetic, that prophetic use of symbolism and metaphor and talk and that sometimes just, we don't know what it is, but it intrigued King Herod. He respected John the Baptist. He came to hear him, hear the king would come down into the prison to hear John the Baptist speak. He liked to listen to him. When we try to understand the kingdom activity, the signs and wonders, sometimes there, there's things about it that's very intriguing. Sometimes there's fear. There can be great respect. But sometimes there's just kind of fear because there's there's power that's taking place that's supernatural. Some like to watch, some like to hear. I don't know about you, but if, if there's a, a, a prophet in the house and he's prophesying over people, I just love hearing the word of the Lord as the prophet is speaking from the Father's heart to another person. Our hearts, because the Father is in us, it, it resonates in us. It, it just fills me to joy, especially when Bob Combs is speaking over one of you and, and I hear what Bob's saying and I say, oh, that's the heart of the Father. Oh, that is so much like you, Dad. That's exactly what you're saying to that person. Oh, thank you. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for those that you've gifted to be able to hear your heart and speak that word to another person. Just love it. I love to hear it. It's wonderful. But more than love to hear it, I love to do it. It's like, okay, let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers of the word. I know I'm taking that out of context, but I think it'll fit. Let's be doers. Realize that you think you just have a compliment for someone and you go over and you just say, I like the color of your shirt or whatever piece of jewelry or shoes or whatever. And, and you feel kind of prompted that you need to go up and give a compliment to somebody and you don't even know that that's the Holy Spirit that's moving upon you. And once you give just that compliment, he then adds the next part. 
So don't sit down on compliments. Don't think, oh, I don't want to, you know, tell Rick that I like the way he's combed his hair today, you know, to go to his head. Don't, just be faithful and see what else comes. But anticipate that there's going to be something else that's going to come. So I want to close with this. Chuck Kennedy emailed me this week, and this is what he said. For those that don't know who Chuck Kennedy is, he was one of our associate pastors here. Chuck writes, this morning, a man I had never met came to my house with a member of the congregation to help install a gate to the back of the property leading to an alley. His name is Marty. He's about 70. He looks like someone from Central Casting for the role of a West Virginia man of the hills. We finished, and I really am financially tight this month, and just as I was about to talk about paying him, Acts 3 comes immediately to mind. I tell him, I don't have the money to pay, but let me pray for you. Remember, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give. <laughs> he was very kind and said he never expected to get paid and didn't put, quote, much stock in preachers and religion, but if it makes you better, make, if it makes you feel better, go ahead. <clears throat> Shortly after we began praying, the word cancer comes to my mind, and I begin to rebuke cancer. He immediately begins to tremble and mumble incoherently. I continue to call out any entity, spiritual or physical, to leave in Jesus' name, and he drops to his knees, clutching his chest. In parenthesis. At first I got a twinge of fear that he was having a heart attack. <laughs> I calmly told him Jesus was taking up his heart as his home and clearing out the old tenant. He looked into my face and he said, Minister, I think this blank is for real. <laughs> he prayed and he accepted Christ and told me he had been diagnosed diagnosed with cancer last week, and he's scheduled for several more scans next month. Two biopsies came back positive, and a couple of masses were not cancer. When it was over, the person from the church confessed that he had known Marty for a really long time and thought he was the last person ever to come to Christ. Then he said, I hope you keep preaching on healing. I think this stuff works. <laughs> I think it works too. I think it works too. I want to just kind of encourage you and inspire you to just allow your spirit and Holy Spirit to just come together with a holy expectation 
of what we call in the vineyard doing the stuff, doing the stuff. First, it's about receiving the Father's love and knowing that you are the apple of his eye, that he is in love with you and that he lavishes his love on you. And if there's anything that's resistant to that, that's where you need to start working deliverance. That's where you need to start inviting the Holy Spirit to remove whatever is causing you to think that it's not true. Invite it out. Holy Spirit, remove it. I would challenge you to pray for 30 days in a row. Lord, remove all agreements and strongholds that I've made. Remove them out of my life. I invite you to remove every stronghold, every agreement that I've made out of my life. Don't wait until you're aware that you have one because it's, it's being developed, I guarantee you. I guarantee you the kingdom of darkness is not giving you a holiday. It's not saying, okay, we'll just leave Bob alone for a little while. No, they're on his tail day and night, just as he is every one of us. Why? They hate it when we get free. Because when we get free, their kingdom is threatened, and they know that. So the works of the kingdom is the preaching of the gospel, inviting people to repent, introducing them to Jesus, bringing healing, casting out demons. Demonization, don't get messed up with demon possession. They're never in the scripture is the word really to be translated demon possession. It's demonized. And there are different levels of demonization, and there is a level of demonization where the person has really surrendered their will to the demonic. But most of us are far less than that, but we still have these little imps that are, that are functioning at a low level that's trying to get us go left when we should go right, to think bad when we should think good, or as some in the congregation have, have been sharing with me, I'm so negative, I'm so negative, all I'm thinking is negative thoughts, you know. Well, there's a demonic influence to that. Now, are you demon-possessed? No. But are, is there demon activity? Yeah. The demonic always wants us to see the glass half empty. It's not a personality trait. <laughs> Oftentimes it's, it's that they want to emphasize any negative they can to discourage and to cause our faith to, to weaken. Let's be men and women <laughs> of the kingdom and let's allow the Holy Spirit to move in ways that cause us <laughs> to just make it natural to be supernatural. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.